0: I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, I'm gonna be reading verses 28 through 36. This is the, the word that Peter spoke of that's more fully confirmed to which we do well to pay attention. of what they had seen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this more sure word that we have been given, and we pray you would open it to us now, that you would help us to receive it with meekness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On August 22nd, 1651, Christopher Love, one of the youngest members of the Westminster Assembly, was beheaded on Tower Hill in London. Over the months between his arrest and his death, He and his wife wrote letters back and forth to each other, and and these letters comprise one of the most soul-stirring correspondences that I've ever read. It's hard to read them without weeping. Christopher's last letter to Mary on the day of his execution was titled, The Day of My Glorification. His final words to Mary read, Dear wife, farewell. I will call you wife no more. I shall see your face no more. Yet I am not much troubled, for now I am going to meet the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom I shall be eternally married." The story goes that just moments before his death, as he was on the execution block, he looked to his executioner and he said, I go from the block to the bosom of my Savior. It's hard to, to hear such a story as that and not be encouraged and, and challenged in the faith. And, and yet, if you're anything like me, such a story can, can give rise to a nagging sense of insecurity within. Would my faith be strong enough to withstand such fiery trials? Would I have such whole-souled joy and confidence in Christ in the face of death? Am I prepared to suffer for Christ? These are questions, friends, that, that we cannot fail to reckon with. The country in which you and I live is increasingly hostile to the Christian faith, and if the spiritual climate continues in its current trajectory, it will likely not be long before fiery trials are coming upon you and I because of our faith in Jesus So how do we prepare for this? How do we ensure we are ready to suffer for Christ? Luke in his inspired gospel would have us prepare by means of an ever-deepening experiential acquaintance with Christ in his glory. The reoccurring question he impresses upon his readers is, who is Jesus? Back in chapter 8, verse 25, his disciples are awed at his power to calm the storm, and and they ask, who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey. Then in chapter 9, verse 9, Herod The pagan king, upon hearing of Jesus' mighty works, questions, who is this about whom I hear such things? And then verse 20 of the same chapter, the chapter that we're looking at tonight, Christ himself asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who is this Jesus This is the most important question in all the world. And and Peter answers this question in verse 20, proclaiming Jesus to be the Christ of God. And to his disciples' dismay, Jesus immediately responds in verses 21 and 22 by telling them of his near-approaching death. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And yet, not only would Jesus suffer unto death, but as his disciples, they too would follow in his steps. We see that in verses 23 through 25. Jesus proceeds to tell them that if they would come after him and follow them, there is a cross for them to bear. They must lose their very lives. The disciples were surely questioning how this could be, Wasn't the Messiah supposed to be a glorious king who triumphed over his enemies? And how would this bumbling band of disciples ever be enabled to undergo such immense suffering? It is with these questions in the air that the transfiguration of Christ breaks upon the scene At no point in all of Jesus' earthly ministry was his glory more fully unveiled than than here. And by it, we learn that seeing Christ's glory prepares us to suffer with Christ. Seeing Christ's glory prepares us to suffer with Christ. Christ. Now, we often speak rightly of the the biblical theme of suffering onto glory. We suffer with Christ, and that suffering is fitting us for an unfading glory, And, and that is right and true, but while suffering prepares us for glory, it is first glory that prepares us for suffering. To put it another way, glory is not only the end result of our suffering, but glory gives birth to God-honoring suffering. And this is true of all forms of suffering, friends. There are lots of different kinds of suffering going on in this room tonight. And so feel free to apply this truth to whatever your situation and circumstance is. But in our context tonight, the specific focus is on a peculiar kind of suffering. It is a suffering for the name of Christ, a suffering for the sake of the gospel, the suffering of persecution. And, and I think it's, it's helpful for us to focus on that tonight. It's helpful for us every once in a while to ask, am I prepared to suffer for Christ. Am I prepared for that? God is here preparing Christ's closest followers for the cross, which is their lot. And he does so by disclosing Christ's majesty in first a display, second a dialogue, and third a declaration. Notice first a display. And by that, I mean something visible, something that's perceived with the eyes. In verse 28, we find Jesus ascending a mountain with his intimate band of disciples, Peter, James, and and John. And and Luke tells us that the reason that, that Jesus went up the mountain was to pray. He went up to pray, And this is important because prayer is is a theme that is woven throughout Luke's gospel, and it often precedes the unveiling of Christ's identity. We see this in chapter 3, verse 21, at Jesus' baptism. And again, in our chapter, back in verse 18, we see it before Peter's confession. And now again, the further disclosure of Christ's person and mission is preceded by prayer. While he is communing with his Father, something altogether extraordinary happens. Luke says in verse 29, "...the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white." Matthew explains further in his account that he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Mark says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. From Jesus' conception in the womb, Christ's deity had been veiled by his humanity. Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 53, had prophesied of the incarnate Messiah that he would have no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. But for this brief moment, for this brief Moments, The veil of his frail humanity is lifted and his intrinsic divine majesty radiates from his person in blinding brilliance. Not only his face, but even his clothes, the, the whole of his human person undergoes a glorious alteration. Jesus had just told his disciples back in verse 27 that some of them would not taste death until they saw the kingdom of God. And now they are beholding the king in all of his glory. This would have surely reminded them of Moses who had also gone up on a mount with three men to commune with God. And and as he prayed with God, And spent time with God, he knew such face-to-face intimacy with the Lord that his own face was aglow. The difference is that the glory shining from Moses' face could be veiled. But Christ's glory here is so profoundly irrepressible that it emanates through his clothing. Moses's face reflected the glory of God. It was a glory not his own. But Christ's transfigured glory is not a reflected glory. It is the shining forth of his own essential eternal deity. This is not merely a prophet who has been with the Lord. This is the Lord of glory himself." And God is graciously putting this on display to teach the disciples that the one who is about to suffer the accursed death of the cross is and ever will be the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. He is not only a greater than Moses, he is the Lord of Moses. And this sight had to be emblazoned upon their minds and hearts if they were to persevere through the innumerable trials that lied ahead. There was a cross waiting for their Lord at the bottom of the mount, and there were crosses waiting for them as well. But this divine display of glory would uphold them through it all. And it is so with us too, friends. Only an experiential acquaintance with Christ in His glory will prepare our hearts for persecution, will prepare our hearts to suffer with Christ. John Owen argues that the beholding of Christ's glory by faith makes all things easy and pleasant to us, even death itself. There are numerous reasons why this is so. When we behold Christ's glory by faith, our hearts are of necessity overcome with love for him, and that love enables us to joyfully suffer for his sake. Likewise, when the sunshine of his majesty shines upon our souls, we are given a taste of heaven, friends, which sweetens our present sorrows. The radiance of Christ's person reminds us that these momentary trials will give way to an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison and this enables us to hold loosely to the things of this earth, even our very lives. But it's not just a display of Christ's glory that the disciples here see, for as their vision is filled with this refulgence of divine glory, a dialogue begins. We, we had a display, and, and now there's a dialogue happening. Two, two men appear with the glorified Jesus, Moses and Elijah, and, and these two Old Testament figures are representatives of the law and prophets. And in this way, they're, they're symbolic of the whole Old Testament economy, which pointed forward to and prepared for the coming of Christ. Christ. We find them here having a conversation with Jesus. And Luke's gospel is, is the only one that tells us the content of that conversation. He writes in verse 31 that they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I wonder if that strikes you as strange, We don't normally speak of accomplishing a departure. When was the the last time you went to the airport and heard the, the flight attendant say, thank you for flying Southwest Airlines. We will be accomplishing our departure in just a moment. We don't talk like that. We don't don't speak of accomplishing departures. And this should give us a hint that the departure spoken of here is is far from ordinary. In fact, if you have your ESV in front of you, you'll notice that this word departure has a footnote. And if you look down, it, it informs us that the Greek word actually means exodus. They were speaking of his exodus which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Children, do you remember the Exodus story? One of our favorite stories, right? The the plagues, the the Passover lamb, the, the blood on the doorposts, the angel of death slaying the firstborn sons, The parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of the Egyptian army, all of this encompassing the the greatest event of salvation recorded in the Old Testament. God had accomplished this exodus, and now here are Moses and Elijah speaking to Christ about the exodus which he is about to bring to pass He would be the lamb, the Passover lamb, and the firstborn son, taking our judgment so that we might be delivered from bondage and fit for a glory far greater than Canaan. In the midst of this display of majesty, these men are speaking of Christ's suffering. Christ had just told his disciples that he would be rejected and killed, And now the disciples are hearing him discuss these things with two of the most dominant Old Testament figures. Christ's exodus is the great end toward which the Old Testament pointed. But the disciples do not understand this. They don't don't get it. And when Peter sees these two men beginning to depart from Jesus... He decides to open his mouth, and he rashly suggests that some tents be erected for each of these three men. What is is Peter doing here? Peter wants to prolong the glory. He is not ready to descend from the mount. He doesn't want this glorious display and enlightening dialogue to end he completely misses that the fact that the glory which he is now beholding can only be had in a lasting and comprehensive way by the accomplishment of an exodus at Jerusalem. The glory revealed to the disciples here was not meant to deliver them from suffering, Rather, it was meant to prepare them for the agony which awaited their Savior, as well as the persecution waiting for them. It was meant to drive them to the law and the prophets to read of this Messiah who would inaugurate a worldwide exodus through his death and resurrection. And thus, We find God the Father intervening, silencing Peter's folly with a declaration, a declaration. The Lord descends upon the scene in a cloud of glory, just as at the original Exodus. And and he speaks, he speaks. What what the disciples have been beholding with their eyes, God himself now explains and interprets. This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. In this short declaration, we find a rich tapestry of Old Testament passages seamlessly woven together. This is my son is a clear allusion to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And as we read earlier in 2 Peter verse 118, we're told that this transfiguration of Jesus took place, quote, on a holy mountain. And we see in in Psalm 2 verse 6 that, that God says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This messianic psalm speaks of the divine son established as king by the father's declaration over the hostile and wicked nations of the earth. The father not only declares him to be his son, but also his chosen one. Hearkening back to Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1, where the Lord says, Behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Isaiah 42 is a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah and servant of the Lord who will bring justice to the nations. However, as as we see in the later chapters of Isaiah, this one who would bring justice to the earth would suffer in the place of his people. As Jesus' conversation with Moses and Elijah had made plain, the kingly son would be the suffering son. And having proclaimed Jesus as the reigning and suffering Messiah, the Father concludes with, with these words, Listen to him. This command directs us back to Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses speaks of a coming prophet to whom the people should listen. Jesus is the ultimate prophet of God. He is the son in whom God has spoken in these last days. And by alluding to these three Old Testament quotations, the Father reveals Christ to be the messianic king, priest, and prophets who will suffer for his people that he might reign with them in glory. What Moses and Elijah as representatives of the entire Old Testament Testament discussed with Jesus, God himself now confirms with an authoritative declaration. The dialogue with Moses and Elijah and this declaration of the Father direct us to the place where the Savior's glory is set forth. It is in the Bible. As Jesus would later say on the road to Emmaus, the the law and the prophets and the Psalms all reveal his glory in his person and his mission. It is through the reading and the preaching of the scriptures that Christ is disclosed to his people. And it is only by us in intently gazing upon his beauty and majesty only by fellowshipping with him in the gospel that we can be prepared, friends, to suffer reproach for his name. If you're sensing your own weakness tonight, when that question went forth, am I prepared to suffer for Christ don't look within. Don't just grit your teeth and and determine to be strong. What we are being taught here and encouraged here to do is to look to him, to behold Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And maybe you're thinking, Nick, that that all sounds nice, but it's uh, it's rather abstract. How, how does one behold the glory of Jesus by faith? You've, you've told me over and over and over I need to have a sight of Jesus, but but there's no mount of transfiguration here. How, how can I see him? How, how can I behold him? let me just close by by giving you a a couple ways by which you can pursue an ever-deepening experiential acquaintance with Christ in his glory. First, diligently attend unto the private and public means of grace, especially the word and the sacraments. These are called means of grace because they are means by which God sets forth Christ and offers Christ to his people. Christ is the one in whom all grace is found. And if you want to see him, there's, there's no better place to go than the means which God has ordained to set him forth. And that means that when we come to the Word in our personal devotions, when we we come to the Word in family worship, we need to come looking for Jesus. We need to come seeking Him, eagerly expecting to find Him. When we come to public worship on the Lord's Day and the, the Word is opened, we should be opening our hearts with a a desire to see and to, to know more of Him, to behold His glory. Is that why you've come here tonight? Have you come here tonight looking for Jesus? Second, read books that set forth Christ in His beauty in both His person and His work. Read John Owens, the the glory of Christ, or Thomas Goodwin's, the the heart of Christ set forth. And if you think these, these guys wrote these things hundreds of years ago, it's going to be in archaic language, I won't be able to understand it. They have been recently republished, they're they're not difficult books to read, and they are full of the beauty of Jesus. And if, if you're wanting something more contemporary, read Mark Jones's Knowing Christ, a beautiful exposition of Christ in his person and in his work. What better way to come to a deeper knowledge of Christ than to read the works of men who spent an entire lifetime gazing upon his beauty and then wrote about it? Third, pray for the illuminating and enlightening work of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is key. Only the Spirit can cause us to see the, the rays of Christ's majesty. Only He can cause them to beam upon our souls. So when, when we come to the Word in the morning, when we come to the Word in our family devotions, we should be praying and pleading with God that He would open our eyes, that He would open the eyes of our children to behold Him. When the Lord's Day comes around and we're sitting at the beginning of the service quieting our hearts, we ought to pray that the Lord would help that preacher up there and that he would help every one of us here to see him. That he would do just what we talked about before congregational prayer. That he would bring revival and exalt Jesus Christ in the midst of his people. Do you know the Spirit loves to do that? He loves to exalt Jesus, and I think oftentimes we have not because we ask not. We don't pray, and we don't pray because we don't really desire to see him as we ought. There's not a longing, a panting, a hungering, a craving. So we need to to pray. We need to cry out to God that he would send his spirit to show us, Jesus. It is a heart utterly ravished by the majesty of Jesus that will enable us to suffer well for Christ in this present age. This is why Christopher Love's soul was so free of turmoil in the face of death. A sight of Christ's glory upheld him in suffering. His heart was taken captive by his bridegroom, and thus no cross was too large for him. And so, too, it will be with us to the degree that we see him and know him for a sight of Christ's glory prepares us to suffer with Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us a revelation of the glory of your Son in the scriptures. And that you have given us your spirit to illumine your word, to illumine our dark hearts, that we might see him and know him. And we plead with you, Lord, that you would work in us, that we might come to an ever-deepening experiential acquaintance with Christ in his glory, that you might fit us and prepare us for whatever crosses you might call us to bear in these coming months and years. Lord, we thank you so much for our Lord, and just pray that you would uh, work these truths in our heart this night. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.